Hello, you are listening to Beyond the Briefcase, a law school podcast with Sarah and Meg. This week, we bring a guest to talk about their experiences navigating creative and innovative areas of the legal profession. We are extremely excited to be welcoming our guest, Adam Feldman, this episode. He has a Bachelor of Arts in Sociology and Political Science from UCLA. He also obtained his JD from UC Berkeley and has a PhD in Political Science and Public Law from the University of Southern California. He is a U.S. Supreme Court legal scholar, as well as a researcher who applies big data and statistical analysis to law. Welcome, Adam. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Adam, our first question actually um, has to do with your education background. So what's really interesting is um, I know a lot of people who, um, you know, did a Ph.D. and then went to do some kind of law degree or even, you know, decided to uh, pause their PhD work to go into law. Um, But for you, if I'm not mistaken, it was the other way around. So um, what made you want to return to academia to complete a PhD after having practiced for a few years um, following the completion of your JD? Yeah, so when I went into law practice, um, it seemed already like uh, a a very um, interesting, but kind of old school type of uh, profession. And, uh, and so I, I was really interested in how electronic legal research could be improved very early on. Um, you know, I was, I was right starting law at the point where there was still a lot that was kept in, in books. Uh, legal research was done. A mix of books and online has become much more uh, computer intensive since then. Um, and, uh, and so there were things that interested me and things that seemed kind of new and innovative. And uh, I found in legal practice, that there was uh, kind of a, a, a bit of a wall uh, that prevented uh, kind of a, a adapting new technologies and innovative ways of thinking. And, uh, and you know, I started to think as I was practicing, uh, working on some appellate cases, how it would be interesting to have data that maybe supported or gave me information on how to make better decisions. So I started organizing that for myself, and I found that there was very little existing framework for that within the legal practice, but that political science uh, in focusing on public law had started developing some of these methodological techniques to look at law in a way that could help with predictions, that could help with defining trends. Um, it became really interesting to me. So I spent uh, some time while I was practicing looking at and reading some of the, the work by scholars in this area. And uh, as it happened, it was just uh, kind of lucky. I, I was in Southern California and I wanted to stay in Southern California. And one of the premier scholars, uh, her name's Lee Epstein, that works in public law and political science, was starting uh, out at SC the year I was thinking of moving over there. So uh, I, I got in touch with her before I decided on uh, going for certain uh, uh, to a PhD program and asked her, is, is, uh, is this move official? And if so, how soon do you take PhD students to work with? And, uh, and she said, yes, it's official. And you can start working with me as soon as you uh, sign on the dotted line. Um, so, uh, so that made the move uh, easy. I mean, there were, there were some complications in terms of thinking about how I would, uh, uh, you know, keep on paying for uh, my, uh, my life um, and my family's life. Uh, so there, there were some complexities there, uh, but ultimately those were, uh, were hurdles that I could overcome. Uh, but that's, that's why uh, I made the, the jump after starting legal practice. And, you know, I kind of um, had that little preamble at the beginning of my question, uh, partly in jest because, you know, that's kind of I, I come from the humanities. I did some work at Columbia. And one of the reasons why people move away from academia and, and go to law is for the is for the money. Right. And so. You know, it's it's interesting. Did you uh, did you find going from doing the JD and and working to um, the PhD process? Did you did you find that to be a really big um, challenge or a big shift? Uh, I'm just thinking about you know my experience at Columbia. It was actually quite solitary, right? A lot of the research was done alone, um, and that's actually at least in my very limited time at um, U of T Law so far, a little different. Yeah, I mean, so so there are um, there's kind of a spectrum of of experience, um, and so you know, in, in legal practice, I found like a lot of what I was doing was pretty solitary in the first few years. Um, it was a lot of you know writing uh, memos, 
document production, uh, doing discovery work, and, uh, and and there was you know some collaboration if we were, we were prepping for a trial or something like that. But yeah, most most cases settle, um, and so it's uh, it, you know the the work kind of ramping up the trial is really where you spend a lot of time. Um, so, so law can be collaborative, yeah, but I, I found it to be relatively solitary, which is fine because I'm happy working on my own. I mean, I, I don't mind working in groups, uh, but you know, I've always fancied myself as uh, kind of a, an individualist as well. Um, and you know, I, I would say that that making the leap from uh, from legal practice to a PhD student was actually uh, pretty simple um, because a lot of what you learn in uh, legal practice is time management. And uh, and so you, when you go into a PhD program, uh, a lot of the students are like lifetime academics and they don't know very much about time management. They know how to read a book and how to write something, um, but you know, they're not used to working you know, 50, 60, 70 plus hour weeks. So you know, when you're used to that and then you have the opportunity to work on your own on projects that are interesting or working in a classroom setting on things that are interesting, um, but you know, you really only need 40 hours a week to do that. Um, it feels like you're on a vacation, uh, you know, I mean, there's lots of room to do other stuff. So, you know, I felt like, you know, on the kind of opposite end of the pendulum where I, I had a lot of time to do things that were interesting to me and while other PhD students felt like totally bogged down in the workload, I, you know, I was living the, uh, the pretty life. That, that's funny because I feel like that's something that I noticed coming from working full time and then starting my G JD compared to people who went from undergrad directly. Um, I've been noticing that I feel like I have a lot more free time and it's very different from the way it was at least constructed for me when I was thinking of applying to law where people were telling me you won't have time to do anything but read and the only thing you're going to be able to do is law. You won't have a social life and I've found that not to be true. I like, of course, we have a lot of work, but I find that it's manageable and not overwhelming, at least not every single area of my life. Uh, so I find that, that interesting that you kind of experienced that as well at, at the PhD level. Of course, I was only working 40 hours a week, not nearly as much as working in a law firm, but um, I, I can still relate, I think, a little bit to, to that sentiment. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I, I will say that, uh, you know, my, my first semester at law school was was arduous, you know, to be sure. But I, I also didn't understand the fundamentals of what, uh, you know, I needed to do to, to succeed in law school. Um, and, you know, my worst semester grade wise was my first semester. Uh, so I spent a lot more time second semester trying to find out what I wasn't doing the first semester and how to do it better. So probably the time I, the semester I spent most in was second semester of first year. And after that, things kind of clicked and I, I you know, it was, it was much more fluid uh, process. Um, but yeah, you know, the, the second semester of first year of law school was, was really where um, I felt like I, you know, was just in the books the whole time with nothing else on the side. Yeah, it's definitely a learning curve. It seems like law is really like learning a new language and a new way of learning, and that's the hardest part. Um, not actually necessarily the topic or the assignments, not that the topics are easy, but I mean, I think we all come in with that passion or at least that interest, and it's really more kind of adapting to the way that it's taught and maybe the Socratic method, depending on what's being used at, at the specific institution. Right, sure. Adam, I have a, another follow-up uh, question. Did you find that, um, this is kind of based off of what, what Sarah just said about her transition from, you know, 40-hour work week to uh, another kind of school program. Uh, my experience at Columbia was that, like, sometimes if you weren't careful, a PhD program could just become all-encompassing and just completely swallow every aspect of your life. And I think that comes out of what you said about most... Um, PhD people or like intellectuals, sometimes, you know, they let that be their whole life. They're in school forever. And so it's really easy to let school be your whole life as a result of that. But coming into the PhD from work, um, did you did you find it easier to uh, compartmentalize your your life or, or perhaps even in the in the legal work that was difficult as well? Right. So I think there's a few uh, different parts to this answer. Um, the first, which I didn't throw out uh, when you were asking me about the transition, one of the reasons I also transitioned when I did was because uh, I was right at the point where I had my first kid. 
Um, and uh, and I, I was thinking, okay, if this is what life is like, you know, and I'm, you know, just married without kids, um, you know, I'm going to not be the father that I, I want to be. Um, and so that, that played into the calculus as well. Um, so, you know, some of the extra time I spent probably spending, you know, I did, I spent with my, uh, with my kid then and then my, my kids since I, I had two kids. Well, I, I, so my, my second child was born during the PhD program and then the third one afterwards. Um, so, uh, so, you know, I wanted that to be kind of the, uh, the trajectory of my life was to, you know, be a member of the family as well as, uh, as, you know, having working a profession. So that was part of the, the, the decision then part of where my time was spent. Uh, the other thing that uh, I, I spent a lot of time on as a PhD student was uh, writing papers, uh, you know, because when I wasn't doing schoolwork, um, you know, I, I still am. I'm interested in like a hundred different directions that the law goes. And so, you know, this is why I blog. You know, there's always something interesting to look at and think about. And sometimes other people are interested. Um, so, you know, there was there was always something to throw myself into you know, developing data sets and looking at problems and trying to find novel solutions. Um, so, you know, there's there's upsides and downsides to that. But I often found myself in these rabbit holes where, uh, you know, I was just trying to find some answer and then, you know, probe it deeper and that might lead to another paper. But there was you know, always uh, a lot of different ways to move. And uh, I have a quick question just about your experience uh, at the law firm. You were mentioning the first um, few years, at least, it was a lot of memo writing and a lot of that solitary work. Um, as you know for sure, since this is a bit kind of adjacent to the area that you're in, but there's new technologies now, like with AI, that are meant to kind of bypass that, or at least it's going to be a lot more efficient. Um, so maybe people starting off at a law firm won't have to just specifically concentrate on that. Do you think that would be a benefit for them or do you think it's kind of an important first step for people starting off as junior lawyers to do that work? So I, th I think this is also a two part answer. Yes. Um, one of which is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm uh, entrenched in this, uh, you know, with a, a kind of personal uh, gusto because, you know, part of my work is consulting with lawyers and teaching them how to adapt to these new technologies. So, you know, I, I, I have built in utility in making sure that that, that happens. Um, so, yes, you know, I think it's a great thing for lawyers to use this stuff. I, I'm I'm all about it. Uh, but uh, but, you know, I, I also find that there is a, a huge wall that I'm pushing against and it oftentimes feels like a wall that, you know, won't crumble down, that people are set in their modes of working and, you know, people at the top are still uh, partners that are, you know, either a generation older than me or, you know, the older part of my generation. Um, and, you know, they're still, uh, you know, kind of hardened in their ways of uh, how to do things and how, how the business is conducted. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to show, you know, all of the different ways that data can be useful, and I think it can be, um, but, uh, but there's, there's a huge barrier to entry there. And that's, you know, what I've seen. I've seen, you know, other sectors of the legal market um, interest groups, uh, in-house counsel are much more willing, even businesses that rely on a lot of litigation, much more willing to use data and analytics in their decision making. Uh, but lawyers, you know, for the most part, are not that susceptible to this, especially those who really make the business level decisions at the firms. Um, now, that being said, it's, uh, you know, just using data and, and methods um, can be hazardous. You know, if you don't know what you're doing um, and you're just trying to apply things, then there's a lot of hazards. You know, there there is you know the case uh, a couple months ago of the attorneys that used ChatGPT to do legal research, and they found that ChatGPT was giving them cases that didn't exist. They found it because the opposing counsel found it as well as the judge. Um, so you know that was kind of pie in their face. But uh, it just shows the you know the, the hazard if you don't know what you're doing and what it's giving you, then it's you can't just rely on something and and you know hope that it's uh, giving you accurate results. Uh, so, you know, you, you need to understand the methodology and uh, and understand the, the costs and the benefits. But, at you know, having that knowledge and using, you know, database tools and, and uh, new technologies, uh, you know, it, it saves time. Uh, it allows for, you know, using thousands, hundred thousands plus observations when, you know, if you're just doing things by hand, you're only looking at a case or two at a time. So, yeah, the, the you know, there's a universe of possibilities out there. But it, it you know it has to be used, I think, with a caveat that there's also a lot of hazards in doing it without um, you know getting kind of steeped in in understanding what exactly you're doing. 
you know, Sarah said something earlier that when you go to law school and you, you know, start doing the assignments and exams, it's just like learning a completely new language. It's like learning how to write and read in a completely new language. I feel like working with AI and even, you know, these kinds of legal technologies, I feel like that's another new language I think a lot of people have to familiarize themselves with because, you know, I, I think about this a lot where a lot of people who go to law school um, can come from uh, you know, humanities backgrounds or the, uh, from educational backgrounds where the paradigm and the kind of pedagogical approach is still self-reading, self-writing, um, you know, turning to books and having the individual you know, navigate that rather than you know, learning about coding or learning about um, different software programs or anything. Obviously, there's exceptions to that. And I think, you know, as time goes on, there's more and more people in STEM who be, who are really interested in going into law. Um, I am not one of those people. And I don't I don't believe Sarah is either. And a lot of the people that we've um, interacted with um, at law school, I don't believe are either. So my, my question has to do with, um, I suppose, in the formal education, um, or maybe not even formal. So like, for instance, undergrad or if people have time on their hands to develop interests, do you do you do you recommend um, familiarizing themselves with like coding or, or these kinds of technologies um, if they if they are interested in law? So I mean, when I, when I was doing the PhD, part of what I was doing on the side was just using Coursera, um, you know, uh, for classes that either weren't covered or I wanted to kind of learn just at a uh, kind of superficial level how these things work. So I was taking courses in probability in coding, you know, in, in calculus, which, you know, I hadn't studied it for a long time, but I needed to understand how matrices work. Um, you know, I, I kind of, I'm, I'm really, I think, good at understanding how things work together, um, but, the, you know, there, there's only a limited amount of time to learn things. So, you know, I've, I've learned a lot of applied work. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm not extremely proficient in things like Python um, or other kind of coding languages, but I know how to apply it. So if I want to do a simple machine learning project, I can I can do that, but I couldn't tell you what code to use. I just use somebody else's code and make the changes to fit my data. Um, so so I, I learned you know the basic techniques that I think I needed to know. Um, and then I, I surrounded myself with people that could be helpful. So you know since I've been in the PhD program, uh, I'm you know spending much more time talking to people with computer science backgrounds and uh, and, and stuff like that that are, are fluent in, in computers in a way that I'm not um, than uh, than I am even you know with with lawyers for the most part. I mean I'm like I'm, I'm helping lawyers understand data, but I'm, when I'm collaborating, it's usually with somebody who has computer skills that I don't have because that's you know the the leap that you know kind of pushes this work I think to the the next level. So yes, you know, I was trying to familiarize myself as best as I could with different methodologies that just weren't within my PhD program or that I didn't need a full course for. Maybe I just needed to spend a few hours learning a technique. Um, but then, you know, it's, it, it's also about surrounding yourself, I think, with people that can be helpful with things that you're not as, as proficient in. I think that's one thing that's nice with the use of AI in the field is that you don't need to be an expert in AI. Like I feel like that could be very scary for some. Uh, we don't all have that affinity with you know higher level mathematics and computer science and and all that. But like you said, it's more about being able to get training from people like you to know how to apply specific techniques and know kind of the basics of a tool. But you don't have to be able to create that tool yourself, replicate it, anything like that, right? It's just being able to kind of sort out what it's able to provide you. Um, so I think that's that's good because or else there would be an even greater hurdle, I think, to being able to integrate that into uh, right. the field. But I think, like you said, I, the barriers, it's probably just this kind of fear of change. I've noticed that when I was working in compliance as well, when people are used to doing something a certain way for a very long time, there's a lot of reluctance to moving to something else, even though you know that ultimately it might be very favorable, but it's just that period of kind of uncertainty that dissuades a lot of people. Yeah, it's interesting that when you were saying that, I'm, I'm also, I'm thinking, and this is, so I, I teach a few classes uh, in political science as well. Um, and so one of the things that I was, I was teaching recently um, is this idea of entrenchment in law. And then what you're saying sounds very similar to that, where 
you know, not only legal technologies are hard to integrate because people are uh, kind of adverse to new technologies, but even like legal reasoning is hard to change around because the types of reasoning are so entrenched. So, you know, this is the like constant dialogue between people that have, you know, a, a uh, penchant for originalism versus for, let's say, like more policy and uh, oriented approaches. You know, it's it, it's this entrenchment that people have been used to doing things for so long that it's hard to change. Um, you know, it's not, there's no answer necessarily what, what is a better way, but I think people are, are adverse to change. They're within law, outside of law. You know, we're, we're used to doing things the way that we've been taught and the way we've learned them. So making any kind of transition like that, whether it's within law or applying law, um, it's, yeah, there, there's, you know, going to be some adversity uh, that you face in trying to make those changes. without a doubt <laughs> without a doubt I find that I find that that is something I've gathered quite a bit from law school and again just this kind of um, paradigm of learning that uh, at least my experience at law school so far that's what I found where uh, we, there's a lot of focus on um, principles and maxims and rules and things like that and um, you know there's some debate I think in class thankfully about the, the logic of it and the, the applicabil applicability over time as well as policy consideration but I still think that um, I mean, even through the Iraq uh, format, right, there is this uh, at the center of it, this kind of um, emphasis on rules. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I would love to um, move on to um, some, of the, some of the work that you've done, Adam. Um, so you do a lot of work analyzing um, decisions and trends at the um, Supreme Court level. Could you tell us a little bit, one, logistically how that works and also um, if, if you have anything to offer about what you consider to be the most pressing issues. Yeah, sure. Um, so, so this goes back, I guess, starting point is where I started my PhD with Lee Epstein. Um, she is one of the leads on a project called the Supreme Court Database. Supreme Court Database is a repository of information on every Supreme Court case that's ever been decided, and it tracks it by case as well as by justice's vote. Um, so, you know, when I say tracks it, like each row in the database is either a case or a vote. And there's two different databases, one the vote database and one is the case database. And uh, people have coded this database to cover you know, somewhere like 40 variables for each case, ranging from what type of plaintiff it is. You know, is it a corporation, a business, you know, a business, a person, a government to uh, what the decision below, you know, what, what you know, the decision below was to what the ideological direction of the Supreme Court vote was. Uh, so it, it has all this information. And when I started, when I said, Lee, I would really like to uh, to work with you. It's like, right, you can help code for the Supreme Court database. Um, so I was one of those, those people who read cases and was putting all this information in and we developed it um, to push back all the way to 1790. So we, you know, it, it like, it wasn't going back, it went back to 1946 when I started working and we just worked our way backwards. Um, so uh, so that's like the first thing that I worked on and I use that database all the time. So, you know, when I when I wanna show trends, like there is no better place to go to show trends than having the whole history of the Supreme Court decisions in a spreadsheet. Um, so, so, yeah, regularly when I write about the Supreme Court, I'm using this historic information to apply to like a modern understanding. And what I found was, um, I'm, I'm going to digress here for a second. I apologize. Um, so I, I started a, a blog called Empirical SCOTUS. Um, and, uh, and I did this because I found that political scientists were really good at writing studies over like 50 to 100 year periods and showing, you know, this is how things were and these are how things changed. And this was the time that things changed. They're really good at making those kind of comparisons, but not either nobody or very few people were actually looking at decisions that are going on now and applying these insights to current decisions. So I was thinking, okay, you know, this is a great vacuum for me to get involved in talking about, okay, history, you know, came up to this point, but this is what's going on now. So, you know, I started writing articles about things that are coming out in a given term of the Supreme Court based on the history um, and, and it gained traction. So, um, yeah, there, there, you know, weren't a lot of people doing this kind of work, and I saw this this opening to to do it, and just it's it's caught on. It's not you know one of the most widely read blogs, but you know it's regularly cited by like national news sources that want to put some statistic in it. You know, today 
uh, there's a Washington Post article that used some of my data to talk about the Fifth Circuit, um, you know, uh, the Court of Appeals. So, you know, being like one of the few people and probably the only person doing these statistical analysis in like a public facing blog form, um, there's, you know, it, there's just a lot of ways that this supports different types of thoughts and comments and, and hypotheses that people have. Um, and then there's a ton to talk about. There's always something new and interesting to talk about. Um, and I find that that's just expanding more and more. Um, so, so yeah, the, 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 some of the data is there. Sometimes I have to do some collection, especially on the stuff that is more recent than they've updated the database for. Uh, but you know, just being able to put this information together and talk about what's going on now is, I, I think, you know, really important, helpful, and sometimes eye-opening. So, you know, like this term in particular, uh, a few of the storylines are, um, you know, administrative. Uh, agency cases. So for a long time, since the 80s, there's been a doctrine called Chevron. Uh, it's a, a case you know, that was called Chevron versus NRDC. Um, and in that case, uh, the, the Supreme Court decided that under certain uh, certain circumstances, the, uh, the, the um, court will say that an agency um, made a correct decision based on a statute um, if, if that was delegated based on the statute's text. And this term in the Supreme Court, there is a high likelihood that this either gets overturned or at least uh, gets narrowed, um, and which would mean that Congress, you know, is, is put back in the driver's seat, uh, which is both good and bad because Congress, you know, is very slow and gridlocked and there's a lot of problems with Congress, uh, but it would be like more kind of purposive from how the system of government was probably designed. Um, so that, you know, the the possible overturning of that case not only is it huge precedent, but the impact on the government um, would be would be huge. You know, great reverberations. There's a couple other agency-related cases that make me think even more that this is really a big issue right now. Um, so, in terms of like big issues, I think that 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 is the one that's you know agenda item on the courts um, on their on their docket. You know, I also think one of the things I've been covering for the last few terms is changes in oral arguments. Um, so, starting in COVID. They, uh, they obviously had to move to a remote format. And uh, and so they were, you know, it was over telephones. And since then, they've taken some of what they did starting over remote arguments and applied them into Supreme Court in-person arguments, uh, mostly by by taking turns. They didn't used to take turns going to justices. Now the format's changed a little bit and that changes who speaks and who doesn't speak. And then there's this whole discussion over, does any of this really matter? Because a lot of people say that the justices really know how they're going to vote before they come to oral arguments. Um, so, you know, th there's like a lot of depth into that. But there's a lot of stories and a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of things to be told that, you know, maybe people are somewhat familiar with, but, you know, don't really know the details about, or maybe they're not familiar with at all. That is really interesting because um, I have to admit when I was, um, you know, learning a little bit more about you and, um, kind of trying to process how you bring in statistics and law and big data, I was like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to really understand this um, fully or, or, or maybe even relate to relate to this with, with my previous experience. But actually, it sounds a lot like um, archive studies or like even museum studies as well as like, it sounds like the kind of work you do on your blog feels like a mix of public humanities and journalism even, right? So it's it's excellent because I think departing from our conversation about how um, certain legal approaches and practices can be quite entrenched in tradition, um, this sounds like you're using technology, but also this very interdisciplinary approach to do some quicker, uh, more you know pertinent uh, work <laughs> as opposed yeah, to some I mean, of the that... older stodgier stuff. No, definitely trying to. I mean, and, and I, I do see my work as, as somewhat interdisciplinary um, in like in the way that you're saying, but also you know, a, a good example is a paper that I had published a couple years ago with a co-author of, of mine um, was uh, it was about Supreme Court oral arguments and about how the justices sometimes interrupt each other. Um, and, you know, I like my study was one of uh, there was another one that actually got a bunch of uh, national coverage. Uh, ours didn't get as much because it went through a peer review and it went through a much longer process. Uh, so it just came out later. Um, so, uh, you know, moral of the story is get your papers out as soon as you can. And, uh, you know, first uh, first one out there is going to get a lot of attention. Um, but uh, what it, what we did in, in writing this it, it, with you know talking about dialogues was we, we used a lot of different literature that looked at how people talk to each other and how 
people are, you know, interrupt each other, or how there's sometimes a gendered approach to this. Um, you, know, you know, most of what we looked at wasn't within law. It was talking about law, but it was using other frameworks to come up with a hypothesis and how it described the, the type of, of behavior that we were observing. Um, so yeah, there, you know, we I, I try to pull in. Oftentimes it's psychology, uh, but you know, other disciplines to understand, you know, to, that can help understand the legal processes. Absolutely. And what's nice too is with that format of a blog, I feel like it's a lot more accessible and you can have lay people, as, as we say, um, being able to see it and, and understand it as well. And it's not just limited to people who are working in, in the legal field because the legal field touches everyone. So I, I really believe in that importance of, of access for legal information. Yeah, well, uh, um, you know, I, I would say podcasts aren't a bad place uh, for it either. So, you know, Fair. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, getting information out there on a regular basis and being, uh, you know, current with what you're talking about, uh, you know, is, is there's major added value there. Exactly. Well, just to to go further also into that statistical analysis, this is something that that came to me because both uh, Meg and I had to read an article uh, going over uh, the use of artificial intelligence and other predictive tools in law and specifically to predict outcomes, uh, guide judicial decisions or predict facts. Um, so this was a part of our application for uh, the law review so, and it seems to be an ongoing debate. So I wanted to know what your position was on uh, on this. Yeah, uh, that's an interesting question and quite pertinent. So uh, a colleague of mine and I are, are working on a what I think is going to be kind of the premier predictive tool um, in, in law. Um, I'd like to, you know, we're starting by looking at the Supreme Court, but it's really something that can be broken down to every court level. And I think uh, I'm hoping that it, it will be broken down beyond the Supreme Court. Um, you know, it kind of goes back to this psychological approach that um, we're talking about predicting things. People uh, are, uh, are get comfortable in their behaviors. Um, they, they, they act in some way predictably. So when I talk about legal analytics, uh, and I'm going to do this actually, I, I'm speaking to a Los Angeles County Bar Association next Monday, um, and the, you know one of the first things I'm going to talk about is legal analytics. Where does it come from? Well, in my mind, you know it comes a lot from sports analogies because you know in in sports world you use analytics to try to pre predict behavior and to make better decisions. Um, and you know frankly, you know when you're talking about baseball and analytics. There's a lot of, of unpredictable elements because even if this happens often, you know, there, there could be a big wind on a given day and that could really, you know, change the elements. Um, whereas, you know, in law, like the way that people think and the way people act, um, you know, are, are generally not going to be affected by, you know, minor kind of whims of the day. They might be affected by, you know, a major catastrophe like an earthquake. Um, but, you know, like little, little things aren't going to necessarily change behavior. So people act in predictable patterns. And so what I've been trying to do is understand what the big motivators of these patterns are and, you know, say, okay, this judge is maybe really entrenched with the patterns while this person, you know, it depends on what the legal landscape looks like on a given day. Um, so to the extent that we can understand and break down people's behavioral patterns, I think it helps with prediction. Um, and that helps with prediction along multiple dimensions. So whether it's a judge's argument, whether it's a judge's vote, um, you know, we can look at the way that people speak. And ChatGPT does this already. You know, tell me uh, some, you know, the, give me a review of Star Wars in Justice Kagan's voice. I mean, it'll, it'll spit that out for you. So, you know, it's already good at speaking in somebody else's voice. Um, but not necessarily at predicting behavior. So, you know, yes, it could probably come up with a model like that. But right now, I think that statistical models, uh, machine learning, and, you know, maybe some of this basic generative AI could be helpful. But, you know, the problem with AI is there's often a black box on what exactly is going on, where with machine learning, we actually know the components of what's going into it. Um, so, so I think like when you combine these things, there's lots of tools out there um, and I'm working with them. I know other people are working with them as well. Uh, but yeah, I think we're going to be much better at, at predicting things in the next five to 10 years. Um, and, you know, we'll see, it's kind of like cops and robbers um, that, you know, the, uh, the cops develop a new technology and then the robbers get smarter. Um, or maybe the robbers, you know, chicken or the egg here. It could go either way. But bottom line is, you know, once judges become wise to this, 
they're probably going to change their behaviors as well, uh, you know, become less predictable or, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. But um, yeah, there's, there's this constant change and it's kind of precipitated by something that comes before it, but, you know, that keeps, it's a cycle. It's like a snowball effect. So there's, you know, there's no way I think to stop it now that the, the box has been opened. Um, Adam, because you are so prolific in all sorts of different modes and genres of writing, but I think particularly like scholarly writing, you know, whenever um, hot topics and hot button issues come up, sometimes I get a little wary when uh, scholars write long articles about, about you know, really pressing or really big issues, um, simply because I, I don't know, it, sometimes I think, one, the peer review process is very long, so, you know, it takes into account of that, but then also sometimes I, I just think that there are a lot of pitfalls or um, areas of consideration that, that scholarly writing, it's harder to, to really delve into. So I, I was wondering, when, whenever you're writing about really hot button issues, are there pitfalls you are become aware of or um, habits that you want to take into consideration when you're doing some kind of writing? Yeah, so... Uh, I guess, you know, I can, I can start that answer with, um, I've been doing a lot less scholarly writing recently, partially because I'm kind of one foot in, one foot out of academia. So I don't gain a ton by writing scholarly writing. And I think generally people write that type of writing for, um, for that community. And that's not necessarily the people that I only want to be speaking to. Um, and, you know, I mean, when people have editors, whether it's law review or peer review, you're, you're going to get somebody else's voice, you know, to be a part of it. Not that that's always a problem, but I, I'm usually pretty thoughtful about why I say what I say. Um, and, you know, I don't want that watered down or filtered. Um, and, and, you know, maybe I don't want to have like 100 pages of footnotes on an article because, you know, I can put a few hyperlinks in and get the same information across. I mean, that's, you know, that's a big problem with the law review process. You know, you can fill up, if you don't have those 100 pages of footnotes, you're probably not going to get accepted into one of the top law reviews. And that's not because you're supporting uh, your, your you know, statements with foundations. It's just because you need to be speaking that language. You know, entrenchment, we're going back to, you know, what we were talking about earlier, there's these, these ingrained processes that are hard to move away from. Um, so so I, I love, you know, the freedom of being able to write on my own, um, and mostly when I'm in the, when I go back to scholarly writing now, it's to be able to work with people I haven't worked with or I, re I find really interesting. I mean, I, I haven't done a solo author, solo authored article in a while, and that's not because I don't have things to say, but because I don't really feel the need mostly to push that out by myself. Um, so, you know, I, I love collaborating and love working with interesting, good people. Um, you know, sometimes people I looked up to and that, you know, it's like, okay, you know, spending time with this person would be really great. Um, but that's, you know, when, when I'm writing for that type of audience. Um, and, you know, like when you're writing, you think about the audience. Uh, you know, when, I, when I've written like an amicus brief, um, you know, it's, it's for the, the, the judges, like you're trying to persuade them. When you're writing a, an article, generally, I mean, you're, you're not expecting it to be disseminated to the general population. So, you, you know, you write for scholars or judges or whoever that is. Um, and you know, when I write a blog piece, I want that to generally be accessible unless I'm talking about a topic that's, you know, find kind of very narrow. And then I, I make that clear in the outset. Um, but, yeah, you know, I, I think that there's values in anything you do that you have to think about who that's value for. Um, and so I've tried to take steps into really thinking through where I should apply my time. Um, because, I, you know, like we said before, you can kind of get sucked down these holes and spend hours and days working on an article. It might not be that interesting, but you've already thrown something into it that you don't want that sunk cost. Um, so, uh, so then you're stuck. But, uh, but yeah, you know, I try to do things where I can see there being a, a big value at the, at the end. So moving on, we know that you also do a lot of work in teaching and in mentorship. Um, so we just wanted to know, because you had the opportunity to teach and mentor several generations of law students and, and hopefuls, um, is, have you noticed any significant changes in their goals, their aspirations, um, maybe changes mirroring the changes in the field of law that you've been able to uh, experience? That's an interesting question. 
Um, I, th I think in terms of changes, I think w w the way you're framing that is probably not the type of changes that I've necessarily seen. I mean, look, I've, I've been teaching now, I, yeah, it's been about 10 years. So um, there have been some changes. It hasn't haven't been like drastic changes, but there've been changes for me. Like I, I, my approach has changed. The things that I've been interested in have changed and my techniques have changed. And I think that that has affected my relationship with teaching and with students. Um, so as, as I've developed comfort in doing what I do, I think students have become much more comfortable with me. Um, so, you know, now I have students that have you know, graduated who are lawyers already, who, you know, still like the, one of the most redeeming things is having a student like that come back and say, wow, I really, you know, loved your class. And, you know, I just want to tell you about what I've been doing with my life since then. I mean, the, like when they want to come back and talk to you, that's like, that's why I do what I do. I mean, I do what I do to educate, but also like forming these relationships are key. Um, and like I'll say, you know, you don't go into teaching like I'm doing for, for the money because um, there's just not much there for people that aren't, you know, unless you're like tenure tracked at a you know, top 10 university law school and putting up, you know, interesting stuff all the time, you're, you're you know, you could be making, making more money elsewhere. Um, and, you know, that's why I, I have multiple hats. Like I do this work and that work and the other thing. I teach because I, I enjoy teaching and I like watching the learning process and I like developing these relationships. Um, so, I, I, you know, I found I as I've become better at what I do, uh, I have much better relationships with the students. I see them making the connections to the material. Um, and, and look, like, you know, things have changed, like the world has changed since then. Um, and technologies have changed since I started teaching. So, so yeah, we talk about, you know, these new innovations, um, but I don't think that ne necessarily changes the way that people are thinking in a great detail. I think the way that people think and the way, you know, this is why teaching is so profound. It's because what you say, you know, has an impact on the students. And this is one thing that I was actually having a conversation with a colleague of mine today, why I think is problematic in legal academia is that you have a lot of really, really um, opinionated professors and, uh, and, you know, I have opinions too, but, you know, for me, my, my kind of normative bent is to let students make decisions on themselves and not tell them how good or bad the world is. Um, so, you know, so, you know, for me, I, I find it problematic when, when, when professors put like a spin on things, Supreme Court's amazing, the Supreme Court's awful. You know, it doesn't matter really what direction it is, but let students figure that out for themselves. Um, so that, you know, that's, that's the power of teaching though. If you, like I know if I put things in a certain format and if I like give it a certain gloss, that people will probably come out of it thinking these things because you're, you know, I mean, you're dealing with students who are impressionable minds and they're coming there to learn. Um, so, so yeah, you know, I, I take the power and responsibility very seriously. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you know, I think my approach has been affected and impacted and that they're, you know, the next down the line is like how that impacts the students and hopefully it's, it's positively. And Adam, I feel like this, um, conversation so far has really centered around this dialectic between fluidity and entrenchment. And so actually the next question I think has a lot to do with that as well, which is, you know, you've been able to teach and mentor all of these um, different generations of law students. Have you found that the law school application process has changed over the years? Um, you know, whether it's become more or less difficult, um, would, would there be anything about that application process that you would want to change? Yeah, so I mean, so I, I work on both sides of this, actually, like I teach some college and some law. Um, so it's, you know, I, I have an interesting perspective, probably one that not a lot of people have. Um, and so I, I'm writing recommendations all the time also. Um, and, you know, what I see is that there's an attempt to be more holistic with the process. Um, you know, honestly, I, I think that that's going to uh, be uh, augmented even more now that affirmative action is ruled out of, you know, U.S. Uh, law schools. Um, and, you know, you have to take a more holistic approach because, you know, I don't think all schools are going to want to get rid of diversity, um, but they, but, you know, it's like, you know, all of these different facets of diversity then have to have to have some kind of impact. Um, so, so yeah, you know, I, 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 from what I've seen, um, you know, numbers are still important, but now you have like the option of some schools of taking the GRE or the LSAT. Um, so there are different windows that are, are open. Um, I think that the, uh, the, the recommendation is a very serious component. Um, I've seen it on both sides. 
So, uh, so to the extent that you have people write recommendations that A, know you, and B, you know, unfortunately or unfortunately, names that are going to be recognized, because if you, you know, I mean, I, I sometimes like defer also, I'll tell students, you know, yeah, people might know me from some of the stuff I do, but they might not know me as the academic. So that might not be who, you know, I might not be the right person, you know, maybe you want somebody who's been on faculty for 20 years that are, you know, known within the field and the school to write you a recommendation rather than, than me. So being thoughtful, you know, however you go about it, of who's writing your recommendation, what you talk about in, in, in an essay. Um, yeah, I mean, I think people take some of the, the components for granted. Um, and I think, you know, at least like with the, the top schools, they're, you know, like they're getting enough uh, applications that are, you know, 175 and above and, uh, you know, 40 GPAs that if that's, you know, they, they couldn't fill classes, like they could fill more than one of their classes with that. Um, and that's not all that's gonna matter. Uh, so, you know, people have to take like, you know, there, there are thresholds that matter. You know, if you get like a 150, you're probably not going to go to Harvard or Yale. I mean, that's just a reality of it. But, you know, I mean, there, there's a big window there. So people, I think, are uh, not taking uh, these things seriously enough if they're not putting a lot of time into thinking about all the different components. Um, and also, you know, thinking about test taking. I mean, that's, that's important also. You know, some people uh, put the time and the energy into it and you know learn how to how to do it i i diagnostic tested pretty poorly the first time i you know i was thinking about going to law school and taking you know okay this is going to be easy well you know uh the reality is it wasn't and i had to put time in and i found that the lsat was something you could study for uh, you know unlike uh you know my high school headmaster who told me don't even you know don't even try you you can't you can't study for a test like that um so uh so he was wrong and i was right uh but uh, no, seriously, um, yeah, you know, you take these things seriously and you think about all the different components. And I think it is, you know, potentially becoming a more holistic process right now. And it's moving in that direction for sure. Um, and, and they're looking for people with like diversity of experience. So, you know, whether it's having a job beforehand or, you know, having a degree in computer science to start out with, um, they're not only looking for political science students or philosophy students that, uh, you know, did really well in, in school. They're, they're looking for more than that. So the extent that, you know, taking an extra year or two and doing something interesting that's going to help your application. I mean, all of that's going to be major added value. Uh, so yeah, I tell students that are college students that all the time, and I see that within the, the law school, within the, the new classes, that, you know, it's, there's much more diversity uh, in terms of experience than existed, you know, when I went to law school. And I, I see that, you know, as just becoming more and more emblematic of where law schools are going. Yeah, that's that's something that I noticed, I think, even with our class. Um, I think a lot of people used to think that if you took any sort of break after undergrad or something like that, that it could potentially be um, negative or reflect ne negatively on you and your application. But I actually think that now it's viewed as a strength. Of course, um, it needs to be something that's applicable, but I feel like there's a lot more emphasis on potential soft skills or stuff like that that you can also bring to the table and that can help you with your legal education rather than just the academic side. Although it's still important, of course, um, but I think there's more kind of branching out uh, in, in Canada as well in our application process. And actually, uh, you know, speaking of um, the maybe US Canada similarities and differences. You know, uh, Adam, you spoke a lot about um, the ELSA in your in your um, answer just now. You know, one of our older episodes, we uh, kind of went over different positions on you know, keeping or removing or amending the LSAT for the law school admissions. Um, and the reason why we had one of those episodes is because, um, one, in the U.S., it seems that some schools are kind of, you know, moving towards either the GRE or even accepting alternative um, tests. And then in Canada, um, and I learned this through... Um, <laughs> through us doing this episode, the LSAT is not actually required for um, all law schools because a French version is not available. And so for these factors and perhaps for other factors, you know, do you have a position on um, on, on the LSAT and, and, and its role in the admission process? Yeah, it's a, it's a tough question. Um, I, I deal with uh, a lot of students who come from low-income communities. Um, and I, I see that, you know, studying for the LSAT is, is a luxury. Um, you know, you have the, the time to do it. You have the 
thousands of dollars to pay for an LSAT prep class. You know, these things, you know, like if you're, you, you have to make your own living and, uh, and your time is either school or work, then, you know, yeah, that's, that's, you know, you're not going to have a fair shot at it, especially if, you know, if my hypothesis is correct that you actually can study for the LSAT. I think it is meaningful. I tell my students that. Um, so is the LSAT a great tool uh, to measure quality of, of the student? Probably no for that reason, as well as, you know, what it's really teaching you. Um, you know, they, they just said, I think, that they're getting rid of logic games on the LSAT. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and that was a huge component. That was actually the component, I think, that studying helped with the most. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if, if that's no longer valuable, you know, then they're not really sure what they're going for. Um, so, so, yeah, there are a lot of flaws with the LSAT. And I like that they're bringing in different tests to maybe, you know, allow different types of opportunities. Problems are it's hard to compare across tests. So somebody that that does well, I mean, I've, I've taken, you know, aside from the NCAT, I think any um, type of standardized test for entrance exams, you know, including the GMAT. Um, yeah, so I, you know, I, I, I've done them all. Um, but, but, you know, they're, they're not like equally applicable to everything. So um, there's something that's going to be lost there. And if you don't have a test, how do you normalize across students? You know, somebody getting a 4.0 in, you know, uh, something at one school is not like a 4.0 or something at another school. And, you know, the science, hard sciences might be, you know, more difficult to do well in than, you know, a, a soft social science. Um, and, you know, and, and that's going to vary per school. So, you know, if I, I think you need something that tests across students, but I don't know how to do that better. Um, I think they're trying and trying to understand that. Um, and like, look, you know, I don't even know what they're looking for when they're testing. Like you're trying to figure out quality, but, you know, maybe it's quality for people like me that can study well and adapt, or maybe it's quality of like what somebody has innately, like that might be what they want. You know, somebody who can just show up on the day of and perform well. So I don't know that they know what they're really going for. And uh, and and so that makes it even more complicated. Um, but yeah, so I, I don't think the LSAT's a perfect solution, but I don't think you can go without a test altogether. Um, so, you know, you're, you're kind of in a lose-lose situation. So it's just go with what you're going to lose less on, um, which is having some kind of test. Yeah, I actually agree. I feel like it, it, it goes well with even what we said um, during the episode, because if you compare it to even other programs that are really competitive, there's always something that's required. And it's typically not just a specific cutoff for a GPA. Sometimes it's strictly, um, you know, mandatory courses that you need to take before going into the program. Sometimes it's another type of standardized test, but it seems like there has to be at least something there, especially when you're looking at a field like law where you're accepting, like you said, people from a bunch of different backgrounds. Someone can have come in with a degree in the humanities, someone else with a degree in STEM. Um, I personally don't think that there's one program that's inherently harder than another. Um, that That's just an opinion that I have where I feel like it depends more on the individual um, because I've known people that could have, you know, gotten a 4.0 GPA with a lot less effort in a STEM uh, field than if they were going into a humanities field. And that's just because of their innate kind of preferences, because I feel like an important thing in terms of succeeding in a field of study is also kind of the interest and, and the passion that you have for it. It can make it a lot easier to, to perform. Um, but yeah, I, th I think that, that it's interesting what you're bringing up that, you know, maybe the LSAT isn't a perfect solution, but there's going to have to be something. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're talking about some of the complexity that I was going for as well. Like, you know, I might be really interested in, you know, in math, but I'm, you know, it's not my strongest subject. So for me, you know, getting a, you know, for like an A or a B might be really difficult, but for, you know, this math whiz sitting next to me, that's super easy. Um, so, right. It's, it's, it comes down to the individual. So it's really hard to tell. You know, bottom line is like from somebody's GPA, how, you know, what that means. So, you know, that, that, that's why something that kind of normalizes is important. Um, but, you know, what that is, is still yet to be determined. 
Adam, one last question, and this is something we like to try to ask all of our guests since they all come from from different backgrounds. Um, but especially for you, because you work a lot in student mentorship, uh, what would your number one piece of advice be for students who hope to engage in a career in law? Number one piece of advice would be to make sure that they really want to engage in a, a career in law. You know, you have, you have a lot of students, and I, I have political science students like this who, you know, they, they love the classes and they, they're, you know, they're gung-ho about going into law. So I always recommend, you know, at very least, like, go sit in the courtroom for a few days and just watch, you know, watch watch hearings and think about, you know, okay, is this what you want to do? Maybe it's not. Maybe you want to go into another kind of law. Like, maybe it's not litigating. Maybe it's transactional work. Uh, but, but observe, and to the extent that you can, get involved with it early. You know, take take an internship at the law firm. Um, you know, even if it's like legal assistant stuff, uh, you know, just just work with attorneys, like get a feel for it. You know, I, I can't like hammer down enough the importance of making sure it's a good decision, both, you know, because of the time commitment and uh, and because of the uh, uh, the financial commitment. So, um, you know, this, the commitment's huge and you're talking like hundreds of thousands of dollars as well as, you know, at least three years of your life. Um, so is, is it four in Canada? You the three? No. Yeah. Okay. Three. Because um, you guys have that weird internship thing at the end of that, you know. That, oh, that, yes. If we count that, yeah. it, it would be, be four. closer to four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So you're, I mean, you're stuck with four years before you're like at full on practitioner. Um, so, so yeah, it's a lot of time and, you know, I, like in the U S like we're talking, it's getting close to, you know, a hundred thousand dollars, you know, a year for room and board. It's, it's absurd. So, you know, then you have to be prepared to get into a big law firm and stick with it for a while to pay back those loans and not everybody's going to get those jobs. So you might not like the job, or you might not get the job in either case, you better be sure about what you're doing before you jump into it. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my biggest uh, piece of, of advice yeah, at very least, you know, talk to people and, you know, if you talk to somebody like me, I'm going to tell you to, you know, get some experience. Uh, so, so yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I would do. That that's really important. I think because it's, it's a bigger commitment than just, you know, doing three years of school, like you said, and, and unfortunately just because of how it is with the cost and everything, it, it if you want to go into a specific field of law that doesn't pay as well, it's possible that you're going to have to delay that, even though it's it's your passion. And it's unfortunate, but it's just a reality. Um, although for us in Canada, it's a lot cheaper than the U.S. It's still quite expensive and uh, there's limited, you know, financial aid and, and bursaries and whatnot that you can actually get. So at some point, um, for most of us, I think it's it's mainly loans, <laughs> and you, right. you're you're coming out of that with that huge debt that you do you have to pay off somehow, right. um, to, you know, also get kind of that liberty and be able to fully give yourself to what is actually you're actually passionate about, which might be working in a big firm and and doing corporate law, but it might not be. Right. Um, so. Yeah, but that's not honestly, it's not a bad piece of advice to have. Uh, I think you know. Um, not only to pay attention to your interests, uh, you know, your intellectual interests, but really because it's such an it's such a costly uh, venture, <laughs> really, really thinking about what what you want to do and how you want to do it. Um, that that is very important. So I really like that piece of advice. With that, I mean, let's let's end the episode. Thank you so much for um, listening to Beyond the Briefcase and Adam, thank you so much for your insight on navigating uh, law school and law practice and going into academia, uh, legal analytics, as well as um, mentorship and the law school application process. Um, this was incredibly uh, enlightening. Listeners, if you are um, interested in learning a little bit more about our guest, Adam, um, do you have any projects um, that you're working on or how can our uh, listeners learn a little bit more about you? Uh, you can always go to empiricalscotus.com. That's my blog. You know, I write a piece um, every week or every other week. Uh, I have a collaborator that writes pretty regularly with me. So if you want something that's current, that's the place to find me. Um, I'm going to be starting a guest column in uh, Bloomberg's uh, legal uh, periodical. So, uh, so soon you'll be able to find me there. 
and you can always look me up on Google uh, Scholar. Um, I, you can find my papers there. Some are behind paywalls, but others aren't. Um, so if you want to read the uh, scholarly writing that only academics are probably reading, uh, then uh, you can have access there as well. Thank you so much. And listeners, we'll be sure to include um, that information as well as all relevant links in our episode description. So that's where you can find it too. Next week, uh, we will actually be having um, the first episode in a three-part series. So over the course of the next three weeks, we're going to be exploring uh, three what you can call bad habits or common problems that law students might face. Uh, and those are procrastination, imposter syndrome, as well as dealing with um, failure and rejection. So Sarah and I are going to be uh, talking a little bit about our experience as well as how we're um, engaging with these kinds of problems in our first semester in law school. Uh, we're also nearing the end of our first season. So after uh, this three-part series, we'll be heading into exam season. Um, we'll be giving a couple of um, little episodes about that process, but definitely if you like what you heard so far, do let us know because we will be working on a second season. Um, as usual, if you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, subscribe, share with your friends. And of course, check out our Instagram at Beyond the Briefcase Podcast to keep in touch as well as up to date with our latest episodes. Thank you to Adam Green, our technical producer. And of course, thank you, listeners. I've been Meg. I've been Sarah. Bye. <laughs>